Okay, you ready to study the scriptures? Let's turn, get your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we'll start in 5. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that's where we'll begin this morning. The last few weeks, we've been doing something really called um, the Life Series. We're talking about the life that God has for, for us to live. And uh, we started with the seasons of life. We, started, we went into uh, how God works in that and... and we, we talked about the big picture of life, how we don't need to get a myopic and view of life and a tunnel vision about what we're experiencing, but we need to see the bigger picture. We talked about what the scriptures say about the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil last week, and it was a really, that was a very meaningful and I think formational message for our church last Sunday. If you missed it, you can catch it on the podcast at onechapel.com. If you need message notes, which I encourage all of you to get, uh, the ushers have been passing them out. And so if you missed it, they'll turn around and look and see if you need them. Uh, but, but make sure that you're, you're following along. I think it's an important retention thing, right? You, 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 you hear it, and it goes in. You know, in two hours, you will forget everything I said. Um, and maybe in 30 minutes, really, depending on your attention span. And, um, and so if you write it down, it just increases retention. All right. So uh, let's pray over the scriptures, and then let's read together. Father... Thank you so much for the power of your word and uh, its authority in our lives. And we, we pray that you would give us revelation and insight, give us wisdom, help us to understand, and then help us to obey, help us to follow. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. We'll just start reading here. And this is Jesus, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it's called. It's really one of the pivotal messages that Jesus gave throughout the Gospels, and um, it's, it's really an explanation of what the, the kingdom of God is like, what's coming, and the age that he's ushering in um, to God's people. And so here's what he's saying. Verse 17 says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, he's saying, you, you have the law, you have the Old Testament, you have the Torah, you have the prophets, the, the books of the prophets, you have all these things. I, I'm not undoing all that. I'm, I'm doing something beyond it. I'm fulfilling it. I'm fulfilling the requirements of the law and what they, what they say. Verse 18 says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is ushering this, ushering in this really a new understanding. The, the, the Bible would call it a new covenant, a new covenant with people based not on their ability to do things right, but based on God's love and, and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. And so, so he's ushering this in and he's saying the, the law and the prophets have been talking about this and and it's unfolding before you. Verse 19 says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's, he's articulating which side you want to be on, right? Like, like, like don't, don't cause people to fail and fall uh, and, and to not respond to the truth of the law, all right? But, but here's the verse. Here's the clincher, right? Here's the kind of the, th that was context, now the verse. Verse 20 says, for I tell you that unless you, your righteousness, 
righteousness surpasses the, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness, right? Righteousness essentially means very simply your right interaction with God, your right standing with God, righteousness before Him. And so he's saying, he's saying these teachers of the law and these Pharisees, they seem righteous to you because they know the law really well. They know, they've memorized vast portions of the Torah. They, they, they're the, really the Pharisees were this really dramatic sect within Judaism, this group of people that adhered to the very details of the law and they, they kept it and they kept it with purity. And he's saying, your righteousness has to go beyond what they do. So here's, so here's the question. What, what's wrong with the righteousness of the Pharisees? and the teachers of the law. What's wrong with it? What's the problem? It seems like, seems like they're doing good things, right? What, like, like, think about this. What is it that, that teachers of the law, if you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what, what would you see them doing? Do they pray? Yeah, they pray. You see them praying. Um, they're described as, as people of prayer. In fact, the passage we're going to read right here describes how they pray. Um, then do they, um, do, do they give to the poor? They actually do. They give to the poor. They make sure that, that people's needs are met. They give to the poor. Do, do they fast? fast? Fasting. Fasting is um, going without food for a certain amount of time as a, a form of consecration to God. Right? Fasting. I don't know why they call it fasting because it always goes so slow. Because <laughs> you're so hungry. But there's something, there's something here about the Pharisees. They, they prayed, they fasted, they gave to the poor. Did they worship at the temple, the place where God was worshipped? Did they, did they do this? Yes, they, they did all these things, but something is missing. Something's wrong with their standing between them and God. Jesus is identifying what's wrong with their righteousness in the next few verses. Because even though they know God's word really well, and even though they do all the right things, something's wrong with how they interact with God. And he, he begins to tell them things like, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, Jesus says, don't even get angry with your brother. Don't hate your brother. It says, he, he goes on in the next few passages, the next few paragraphs, and he says, things like this. He says, um, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. What? Don't resist an evil person. No, I want to pay him back. Jesus is, is pointing the way to something else. He says in verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. What? Love your enemies. Jesus is pointing to something here. Even though the law says one thing, Jesus is pointing to something that goes on with inside of our hearts, inside of our souls. Jesus is articulating a way of life that goes beyond the law into the very thoughts and into the attitudes and the motives of our heart. Now listen, let me, let me, let me explain something to you. Every one of us, we all have a, a secret life that we live. It's not, not really able to connect with any 
other person. You don't really share it. The only way you share it with another person is if you tell them about it. But there's a, there's a thought process that goes inside of us, in our minds, in our hearts, in our soul, certain emotions. There's a secret life that all of us are, are living. A psychologist sometimes will call it self-talk, you know, where we're having conversations with ourselves. And you can tell somebody else about that conversation, but they, can't, they don't really experience it. No matter what kind of confidant you have or, or how close your spouse is or how good your friends are, there's a thing, there's an experience that you're having on your own. And what Jesus is, try, Jesus is, is trying to do is he's, you can keep that from other people. You can keep that space, that secret life from other people. And you can do things that will hide what you're really thinking and what you're really feeling, but only for a limited amount of time. And what Jesus is wanting is he's wanting to inhabit that space, that secret life, that, that, that secret conversation you're having with yourself. That's that, that experience of being truly alone. He wants, to, he wants to join you there in that place. He wants, to, he wants to share his life with us and let that life begin to pour out from within us. Here's what, here's what Jesus said. He said some more things about the uh, Pharisees and the teachers of the law. If you look in your... Um, if you look in your notes there, it's Matthew 23, 25. It says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Jesus didn't mince words. He was pretty direct. And he's saying that these religious people are doing their religious things from a bad motivation, and a poor perspective. And he says, and he said something about, he's, he identified a principle, which is pretty, pretty profound. I don't know if you've ever washed dishes. Most people in the room probably wash dishes, right? We used to all wash them a lot more before dishwashers, right? Now, now we put the dishes in the dishwasher. And there are two kinds of people who put dishes in the dishwasher. There are the people who believe that you have to clean off the gunk on the plate or the cup and then put it in the dishwasher, right? So that it'll all be clean at the end. And those who just fill the dishwasher with all kinds of garbage and nasty junk and then have to clean it off later, eh? <laughs> you can tell which one I am. So... I, 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 I clean it, I clean them, and then I let the dishwasher finish the job. But if you're washing a dish, Jesus is hitting on something here that's pretty profound. And I don't know about you, but we, in our house, we have five kids, and we often find dishes laying around that have been sitting there with something in them for a period of time, um, days, <laughs> weeks, <laughs> Sometimes we'll find little cups or something, and they've got all this junk, this gunk way down on the inside. And then you have to take it to the, to the sink, and you have to dig down there and clean out the gunk. And it's work, and you've got to dig down inside of it. And if, and if you do that, before you put it in the dishwasher, then it will be clean. But here's, here's something interesting. When you decide to wash dishes, you can easily clean the outside and never touch the inside. It's easy to do that. When we're training our kids, that's what they do most of the time. 
they clean the outside, and then it's still in there. But notice, when you decide you're going to clean the inside, when you're going to, to dig one hand down on the inside of whatever cup or dish that you've got, as you do it, as you dig down there and clean it and twist it with your other hand, what you will find is that the outside automatically becomes clean. In fact, you can't dig the inside out and leave the outside unclean. It happens automatically. This is the dishwasher principle. The di it's, right in your, it's right in your message notes. The dishwasher principle. Jesus is saying, if you'll deal with the heart first, if you will deal with the insides first, if you will take care of what's going on in your heart first, there's something that will happen. The outside will be clean too. Make no mistake, Christianity is an inside job. It's an inside out. It's not an outside in. And so Jesus continues to, to pick up the story here in chapter 6, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time in verse 1 of chapter 6 in Matthew. Here's what he says. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He was saying, you have acts of righteousness that you're going to do, and if you do them to be seen by them, then there's no value in the kingdom of God. The way the kingdom works, it doesn't work if you do good things with poor motivations. Good things are better than bad things, for sure, but they don't have kingdom repercussions. They don't have, they don't have supernatural um, uh, things that happen as a result. They don't have the, the implications. And so, so he says here, he says, when you do your acts of righteousness, be seen by men, you've got no reward from your father. There's no kingdom reward here. Verse 2 says, so when you get, give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. I love this. Jesus says, you can have your reward and it can be this. You can have a reward, and it's the nice opinions of other people. Oh, welcome to it. Fantastic. Live it up. Have a great time. But Jesus says here, as he's describing it, it makes me realize how messed up the religious system had gotten, because it had gotten so bad that they were announcing their own acts of righteousness. They're, they're announcing it with trumpets, which feels kind of sickening. Verse 3 says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, I want you to do these things in secret without people seeing it or knowing it. Because here's what he's saying. He's saying the value of an action is determined by a motive. The value of our actions are determined by our motives. And so Poor motivation. There's so many people that want to do good things so that they can feel good about themselves. Okay, that good feeling only lasts for a certain amount of time, right? It's not the, it's not the best motivation. That motivation doesn't hold any water in the kingdom of God. There's something else. There's another reward that God gives when we decide we're going to do this for no reason other than we belong to Him. Now, he says, he says this, all right? He says, let your left hand, don't let your, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Are you guys still with me? Okay, all right. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. 
So how does, how, how does that work? How do you, I don't know if you've ever, pat your head, rub your tummy. You ever do this? It's too, it's, it's pretty, and then you reverse it. I, I don't want to mess my hair up. So you, there's something about this thing where you're like, if I say in the room, I say, all right, everybody, no, don't think about pink elephants. Ready, go. No pink elephants. Don't think about them. Right? It's kind of awkward. It doesn't make sense. Here's what I think Jesus was saying. I think it's like when you're driving somewhere and you get there and you have no idea how you got there. Has this ever happened to you? You're like, I'm driving the car and then I arrive and I have no recollection of what I was doing while I was in the car or how I got to this destination. And, and here's what happens to me. I drive to and from the church all the time from my home. And sometimes I'm driving from my home to the church and I, 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 I get to the church and I don't remember the trip. Or while I was on the trip, I went to the Bahamas. <laughs> my mind. And, and then I came back. And, and, then I'm, and then I'm here. Now, here's, here's what happens. I don't have to think about, I don't have to think about the, the distance or the drive or the roads that I'm going to turn on from my house to the church. Why? Because I know it so well. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to try really hard. It just happens automatically. What Jesus is saying is he wants us to act in a way. When we're going to take care of poor people, when we're going to take care of people in need, we do it not because we have to try to make something happen or impress other people. He wants it to be a natural byproduct. He wants it to be an outflow of our character, of our nature, of who we are. That this is who we are and that's why we're doing it. He's, he's, he's pointing us beyond actions to the character, the difference between what's in our heart, the reality, that secret life, and the appearance. And so Proverbs 4.23, you know what it says? It says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. What goes on in here determines what goes on out here. But, but here's the thing. Jesus is pointing at something, and he, and he keeps going here in verse 5. Notice what he says. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by them, to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, who is unseen who he himself is hidden. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like pagans for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need even before you ask him. <laughs> it's so interesting what Jesus is doing here because he's identifying something that all of us wrestle with and he's, and he's really pounding on it. He says, don't do your acts of righteousness before men. Don't give to the poor to be seen by people. And when you pray, don't pray to be seen by people. You ever, you ever been praying in a circle, Baptist prayer circle? Anybody ever been in a Baptist prayer circle? If you don't know what that is, it's a little circle. You hold hands with the people around you, and you go around and you pray one at a time, and you're praying for something. You're praying for different things, and you're just there, and you're praying. And people pray, and then it goes all the way around the circle, and it's coming to you, and then the guy in front of you prays what you were going to pray. <laughs> and you're like, oh, oh, now what am I going to pray? <laughs> 
You're not a Pharisee at that point, but you're, you're like one step away because really all you're thinking about is what other people think about your prayer. God doesn't care if you pray about that again. It's a, it's a thing, right? So we, we, what, here's the question. Why do, we, why do we care so much about what other people think? Why do we care so much about what other people think of our own righteousness? We use other people's opinions for a validation. We use other people's opinions to define our worth or, or to somehow define our significance. Other people's opinions of us, it means so much. And, and Jesus himself is aiming right at this problem, right at this issue. And so he's saying, I want you when you pray, I want you to close the door and I don't want anybody else hearing it except me. Number two is the power of a secret life with God. You know what it is? You know what the power of inviting him into your secret life and letting him inhabit all of those issues and all the concerns and everything that you've got going on in your mind and in your heart and your soul. The power of a secret life with God is freedom from the control of the opinions of others. Because what you're doing is you're giving him that place where it's his opinion that matters most. His opinion matters most. You're not worried about what other people think. They don't even know what you're praying. You're not worried. You've, you've, you've created an opportunity when you give to the poor and nobody else sees it. What you're doing is you're putting God's opinion above everything else, His idea above everything else in your own heart, your own soul. Secrecy, what Jesus knows is secrecy forces you to choose the right reward. Confidence in God versus confidence in other people. The opinion of God versus the opinion of other people. Here's what Dallas Willard, brilliant theologian, said. He said, Jesus is teaching us how to be in life what we are in prayer and how to be in prayer what we are in life. What he wants is what's happening in the prayer closet, in the, in the private, secret life that you're inviting God into starts to look exactly the same as what's going on in your life. And the things you talk about here are the things you talk about here. And, the, and the, the person you are here privately is the person you are publicly. That's what Jesus is trying to highlight. Notice he does it again. Verse 16, if you go down a few verses, he's teaching them about how to pray. And then verse 16 says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. Because fasting's miserable. <laughs> they just figure, oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, oh. I tell you the truth, they receive their reward in full, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. In other words, clean up so that it will not, I love this phrase, will not be obvious. It will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Some translations say, reward you openly. What Jesus is saying here, number three, is hidden devotion is greater than public display. It seems upside down to our world and the way that people think. No, your actions are what's important. I don't care what you feel or what you think. Your actions are what really matters. Listen, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm trying to get to the origin of all the motives and the origin of all the actions and the origin of all the attitudes because that's what's most important because he knows, right? He knows that all secrets will be revealed. 
Every secret is coming out. Every secret. Look what, look what Luke 12 says. It's in your notes there, I think. Luke 12, 1 through 3. Jesus is talking to this crowd of people, and he says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on each other, Jesus began to speak first to the disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast is a tiny little ingredient that you put it into a loaf of bread or, or some dough, and it, and it affects the whole loaf. All right, and so he's saying, Be on your guard against this little thing that, that, the, the, that is in the Pharisees. It's called hypocrisy. And there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. It's all coming out one way or another. In our faith, in the Christian tradition, what do we do when we sin? We confess. One of the greatest things we can do is confess the sin, the failure, the power of the secret becomes broken. People who have a secret in their lives, they often become tormented internally. It's internal conflict. And it's not just, not just people who believe in God who experience this. The internal conflict of an outward appearance and an, and an internal reality drives people mad. It breaks them. It overwhelms them. They don't know what to do with it. Jesus provides the solution when he, when he teaches us that there is, a, there is a confession process with him, an admission that we are really who we are. And this is the reality that's inside of us, and, and, and we need him to come in and to change those motives and to change those attitudes, and he begins to replace death and brokenness and failure and a history of violation, and he begins to replace it with life and grace and mercy and truth and peace. That's what Jesus is trying to do, and he's trying to articulate that here in this, in this Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the news are full, the news stories everywhere. I asked the second service, I was like, how many people read the newspaper? <laughs> Nobody reads the newspaper anymore. Nobody even knows what a newspaper is. It, it, but when you look online and you see all the headlines, what are they? People who thought they could keep a secret. People who s stole from the company and it got discovered. People who cheated on their spouse and thought they could hide it. People who got so mad at somebody who had taken advantage of them that they took revenge themselves and then tried to hide it. The, the, the headlines, this is, what, this is kind of what fuels all our news <laughs> across the nation in our culture, is people who think they can keep a secret. Jesus is saying, you can't keep secrets. They, they, they come out and they should come out. They will come out. And if you'll cooperate with me, there, there'll be something good that will happen to you. Which leads us to number four, which is you and I are called as God's people to live as if there's no such thing as a secret. Live as if there's no secret that can really be kept. The devil comes and tempts you and says, oh, it's okay. It's all right. No one will know. Just take that money. It's all right. Just go ahead and look. No one will find out. Just go ahead and take advantage of that person. No one will even realize you've done it. That's his, that's the way he functions. He wants you to think you can keep the secret. You can't. It's going to come out. 
So look at this. Both kingdoms value secrets, but for different reasons. The kingdom of darkness wants to develop a sin in your life. He wants you to get a little sin of lying. Oh, it's just a little white lie. It's no big deal. It doesn't hurt anybody. But then lying begins to grow into something. It begins to establish itself as a way of operation within your life. You can, it, it can be gossip. It can be immorality. It can be all kinds of things, little sins that begin to take over. And before you know it, you have shame because the outward appearance is different than what's really going on inside. And shame is so damaging to the human soul and psyche. And Jesus came to rid us of shame. And so there's a, there's a shamefulness that begins to operate inside of us and takes hold of us. And then before you know it, there's a stronghold. There's like this, this thing has gripped us. And now we're just functioning out of shame. And we're functioning out of keeping deception away from other people. that We're deceiving them. And we don't want them to find out our secret in the way we really are. Unless, of course, you sign up for a reality, reality television show and then you want everyone to see all the gunk and the garbage because that's good TV. That was sarcasm. So what happens is once this stronghold gets a hold of you and it grabs you, then something else happens, separation from God. Not separation because he's rejecting you. He's never interested in that. You will never find a place in the Bible where where, so, where God rejected someone's repentance. You'll never find it. He's, he's ready. He's prepared. He, he's full of love and mercy, and he wants to pull us into relationship with him. But this separation comes out like this. It, it, says, um, it says, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm, I'm really not good enough to be this kind of person. And so I I can't, I, I can't stay here. I can't, I can't be involved with God. I can't be involved with his people. I'm not good enough. I'm a terrible person. Or you come to the conclusion that you can't fix the problem yourself and you get angry at the other people who are so judgmental of you. And then you just become angry at the whole, you know, because your imperfections are showing. Now you start blaming other people and you start rejecting them. And then you finally you reject God, who's just a mean, cruel, you know, overgrown kid on an anthill with a magnifying glass. And that you come to that conclusion because of what's the damage that's going on in your heart. It's untrue. It's not reality. But the reality that's in here begins to come out begins to make its way out. Jesus is saying there's something else. The kingdom of light, here's, here's, here's the kingdom of light's goal for secrets. He wants you to keep secrets with him in communion with him. He wants you to spend time with him and him alone without anybody knowing, without anybody seeing, because, he, because you're going to be begin to shape your life and bend your life around his opinion and his desires. And that communion with him it develops a consistency when you do it every day, when you have a, a place to pray, a place where you're interacting with him, a secret and silent conversation with God all through the day. That's how Brother Lawrence, who wrote The Practice of the Presence of God, he, he described it as that, a, a conversation that's going on throughout the day, an interaction, and that consistency builds something called confidence. And you begin to have confidence because the outside's starting to match in the, match in the inside, the inside, the humility, the, the grace, the strength begins to come into you, the wholeness that you have, and you start, you start developing a certain confidence in what God says about you, who you are as his son, as his daughter, that you are who he says you are, 
that he loves you incredibly, and he's given you gifts and, and he's empowering you to influence other people for his kingdom and, and for the life that he's given you. And so you have this confidence, and finally, it begins to shape your character, and it goes on long enough, and you begin to shape the character that everyone else sees. It's a life that is well-lived. And it starts with a secret life and inviting God into it rather than keeping it on your own. Because here's the truth. Number five, life organizes itself around your heart. So life is going to organize itself around what's going on in there. It's going to organize it. Here's what he says, final little little part of this section that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't store up for yourselves here treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Hey, whatever you treasure, that's where your heart's going to gravitate. The treasures of your heart are going to define the desires in the... In your, in, the, in, in your heart, in your soul. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here is the Father, your heavenly Father, wants you to treasure Him above all things. He wants you to give to the poor. Yes, don't. He's not saying don't give to the poor. He's saying you should give to the poor, but do it in a way that's just part of who you are. And, and is doing it because of him and, and the fact that he's living through you. Do it when you go to pray. Don't pray for other people to, to be heard by them or don't use a lot of words. Just pray to him. Allow him to speak to you. When you fast, Jesus is saying it over and over again because there's a secret life and God sees that life. And when, he, when he, you invite him into it, then he begins to reward you. Not with just admiration of others, but with heavenly treasures, kingdom life changes our life. He works his way out from the inside. He plants a seed in there, a seed, and it begins to grow, and his life begins to grow in us, and it works its way out. It's not an outside in, it's an inside out. Close your eyes and, and, and just bow your head for a moment in prayer, and I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Maybe listen for his voice to describe for you what's really happening in, in your soul. What's your self-talk like? What's going on in your secret life? Would you be willing to invite God into it? Would you be willing to invite His presence and His power to come and to clean it up, to invade, inhabit, to bring life where there is death, to bring healing where there is hurt. We're going to come to the Lord's table right now, and I want you to come to the table realizing that Jesus has provided everything that we need, that this bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you and for me, and his brokenness creates our healing. The cup represents the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ was spilled and shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Death 
lives in us. We need life to come and replace it. That's why Jesus died. And so would you receive of his life today? As we come to this table, would you repent of your sins? Would you turn away from doing things on your own, making things as you see they should be, trying to make things happen on your own? Would you be willing to let him in? So, Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Christ. We ask you to speak to us. We ask you to restore us. We ask you to heal us. And we ask you to give us a new perspective of how to live life with you. We thank you for this. We receive from you now in Jesus' name.